Well, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever time it is, wherever you are tuning in. Thank you so much for joining me today uh, for this final episode of Facebook Live for a while. Uh, this is the conclusion of the series on compassion uh, that I've been offering leading up to the eight-week online retreat that I'm offering under the same topic of compassion. Uh, now, before we get started, I just have one announcement to make uh, this morning. And this is uh, just to announce that I am offering one-on-one uh, -on -one meditation sessions online. Uh, and so if you currently have a meditation practice and or you're interested in cultivating a deeper practice that you already have, um, it would be great uh, for you to uh, sign up. Uh, the one-on-one -on -one student teacher uh, relationship uh, can't really be overestimated. Uh, it uh, can be a very valuable, important tool on the path of um, awakening. So uh, if you really would like to take a deeper dive into a meditation practice, and if you're just beginning a practice and, and like to get started uh, with good, uh, confident footing, uh, uh, a good qualified meditation teacher can really help. And I often say it's a lot like learning a language. Uh, you know, you can do it on your own, and there are many apps and videos and such uh, offered today. And that's the wonderful benefit of living in the 21st century. And those apps and videos and books uh, can take you, you know, to the, to the gate. <laughs> They can lead you to the path, if you will. But uh, it's very difficult to get beyond a certain place in that journey without a qualified guide or somebody who has walked the path uh, extensively themselves. So that person can point out the pitfalls that one might fall into, the imbalances that one might, that one might encounter as a result of meditation practice. So if that's interesting to you, I encourage you to visit my website, suchsweetthunder.org, and go to the online studies page. Now right here, you might expect that I'm going to announce the uh, Kuan Yin Retreat into Compassion, uh, but actually the spaces are full. So um, sorry if uh, you were interested. Uh, now. There has been some interest uh, from my friends in Europe, uh, but they, they're finding the time very restrictive and they would really like to take uh, part in the live offering rather than the recordings. If you fall into this category and or you find 8 a.m. in the morning too early if you're in Asia, um, send me an email. I'm considering opening a second uh, time, uh, somewhere around 3 in the afternoon here in Asia, 8 a.m. in Europe, or I guess 8 a.m. would be in the UK. So adjust your clock accordingly. Uh, so send me an email uh, if you're really wanting to, to be in the course, uh, and we'll see what we can set up for you. Okay. So without further ado, I am going to launch into today's offering. And so as you know, if you've been with me before, I, I like to start these offerings with a brief guided meditation as a way of kind of setting the table here uh, before I get into the bulk of, uh, of the offering today. 
Um, now I intend to do a guided meditation towards the end of the practice as well. Um, so it'll be a meditation heavy session, which is good because you're probably tired of listening to me ramble. <laughs> so uh, this will again be a practice similar to the other practices. It'll be kind of focused on gratitude. Uh, the opening meditations are always optional if you wish to just follow your breath or go have a glass of water, do whatever you need to do to be comfortable, and then come back. The opening meditations, I guess they've been lasting about seven to 10 minutes, so it's hard to really know how long it'll be. But if past experience is any guide, uh, seven to 10 minutes is, is the probable outcome. And so the invitation is now to come into the present moment. Allowing the body, mind, and heart to settle, relax, and rest. And if you wish, taking a deep breath here, just breathing in nice and deep, breathing out slow. Breathing in nice and deep, feeling the breath moving through the body and feeling the breath exiting the body. There might be sensations of the breath around the nostrils, cool or dry. You might notice the breath as it touches the back of the throat Perhaps simply noticing the temperature changing from cooler to warmer at the nose and the back of the throat. You might notice the rib cage expanding and contracting with each breath. The rising and falling of the abdomen as you inhale and exhale. There might be sensations of the back moving out as you breathe in and in as you breathe out. And the shoulders rising and falling with each breath. Perhaps simply noticing how the breath moves the body to and fro as you inhale and exhale. Now there might be days or times where the breath feels rather inaccessible. And so we always have the option of anchoring our awareness into the present moment through the sensations of the body. Bodily sensations are always present moment experiences. And so the invitation is now to bring attention to any sensations arising from the feet.
inviting the muscles in the feet to grow soft and relax. Noticing sensations of clothing against the legs. Inviting the muscles in the legs to grow soft. Perhaps noticing the weight of the body against the chair or cushion or mat or floor. And here you might notice how the body feels supported by however you're seated, whether it's in the chair or the floor. Noticing that feeling of being supported and held. Noticing the sensations of clothing against the back, inviting the muscles in the back to relax and rest. Perhaps noticing the hands resting against the body or touching each other. The arms resting against the body. Inviting the hands and arms to unwind and grow soft. Perhaps noticing sensations of clothing against the shoulders, inviting the muscles in the shoulders to rest. There might be sensations arising from the back of the neck, the sides of the neck. Inviting the muscles in the neck to relax and rest. Sensations arising throughout the cheeks of the face, inviting the muscles in the face to grow soft. Letting any tension or stress held in the face go. You might notice sensations arising from the crown of the head. And breathing in and breathing out, resting, resting. There might be days or times where the breath and the body feel rather faint or inaccessible. There's nothing wrong with that. So the option there is to turn attention to any sounds which might be available. The sounds are always present moment experiences as well. And if you wish, you can actually rest with the entire field of sound, not focusing on any one sound, but noticing how the soundtrack of the present moment unfolds, each sound finding its perfect place in the rhythm of now. And so we'll rest right there, just for a few breaths, maintaining awareness by anchoring our attention in the present moment, either with sounds or sensations of body or breath. And you can use a combination of all three. That's fine too. 
and just rest. As we rest here in this present moment experience, the invitation is now to bring into awareness a memory, a recent experience, or a distant experience, which allows you to feel gratitude. You feel a sense of gratefulness for this experience, a sense of goodness, or just maybe a sense of warmth or happiness. This could be the laughter of a good friend, the purring of a pet cat or kitten, a warm cup of coffee in the morning, a memory of sitting on a beach during a vacation, a long time ago. Really allowing the memory of this experience, this goodness, to settle. Feeling into the goodness. When I say feeling into, recognizing the physical sensations. What about this memory tells you that it's good in the body. This might be kind of a warmth or a softening around the heart. Or you might feel a smile come on your face if this is the recollection of laughing with a close friend or a family member, loved one. And as we allow this good feeling to really settle, taking in all of the aspects of the goodness, the physical sensations, there might be aural memories of laughter or music, the sound of the waves against the shore, the sound of the cat purring or a bird song. So we have physical sensations of goodness, aural experience, the sounds of this experience. And if there are thoughts about how good the experience is, you can allow those to enrich this goodness. Really allow yourself to taste the sweetness of this recollection. Each time we do this, we allow the flow of oxytocin in the system, endorphins, and strengthening the neurological pathways for happiness, contentment, joy, 
And so the invitation is now, if it feels accessible, to allow this goodness to begin to grow or swell or, as I like to say, amplify, turning up the volume on this recollection as if you were turning up the volume on your favorite song on the radio. Really feeling into the goodness from the marrow of your bones, the muscles, the arteries and veins, the tendons, and shimmering out through the surface of the skin, all over your body. Just rest in this goodness of this recollection for a few breaths. And in the next breath or two, I will ring the bell and cue the shift back into our conversational space. And so I'd like to thank you for joining me in that meditation or however you felt comfortable holding the space, whether if it was just following your breath or resting, or if you in, uh, followed along with the guide there. Um, I thank you for your energy, your time, your commitment, really for joining this session. Uh, you know, in joining this session, if you saw the, the advertisement on Facebook, uh, you know that today's session is um, a session about cultivating compassion. Uh, and so just the, uh, the, um, the commitment to be here for that is worth uh, noting. And so you can pat yourself on the back or uh, just you know congratulate yourself for taking the time uh, to uh, make an effort to cultivate compassion. I think as the current world climate continues to illustrate, uh, compassion more than ever, compassion is needed for, to heal the wounds of this world. And so one might ask uh, reasonably, why did we start today's session with a session on gratitude and happiness? Uh, you know, because with the shootings in Atlanta, which I t intend to address, and with so much division, uh, you know, in, in Myanmar, the civil war there, horrible loss of life. Uh, Hong Kong also, the, the, the protests there that have been going on now for quite some time. Here in Thailand, there are protests as well. There's so much division. 
why practice happiness? Why is that positive? Is that toxic positivity? I often hear this. And so actually when we practice meditations on cultivating happiness, cultivating loving kindness, cultivating joy, we're practicing balancing out our negativity bias. See, humans are innately wired to focus on the negative in life. It's part of our, uh, our DNA. It's wired into our nervous system to do that. Arguably, it's one of the reasons why we've survived uh, the Darwinian struggle as long as we have, is we have this negativity bias. Now, the problem with that is that we don't need to do that any longer. That's a part of an outdated worldview that we've grown out of thousands of years ago. We're still kind of, you know, paying our debts to that worldview. And uh, the negativity bias now, because it is part of an outdated worldview, is causing a lot of imbalance and a lot of struggle, a lot of suffering. Uh, because when we see something on the news like this tragedy in Atlanta, or you know the race riots, or uh, the the storming of the Capitol, the insurrections or you see the, the division and loss of life in Myanmar and so forth. The tendency is then to think, you know, we're all doomed. You know, we, we have that negativity bias and we cling to that. We think that that's the way of the world, that it's all like that. And that, that's not the case, actually. The world is getting a lot better uh, now, if you compare, if you have, if you take a step back and you look at the history of mankind, of humankind, you know, as a race, as a species, we were much more violent in the 1100s, 1200s, 1300s. It's much more murder and mayhem throughout the Dark Ages than there is now. In fact, the last time I read these numbers, it was something like 60% a male, an adult male, was 60% likely to be murdered by another adult male uh, in the, through the 1100s, 1200s, to the 1400s. Uh, now that average is about 2 to 3% in the current time, 21st century. So looking at those statistics, you know, we are in a, in a much more civilized age. We are a lot less violent, more peaceful. And I think that's worth noting and paying attention to, particularly in times where if you're feeling stress over the current world situation, to remind us that, you know, to, to bring into, the, into mind that reminder that we're in a better place and that we are moving towards a more peaceful culture, a more peaceful worldview may not seem like it sometimes, and it does, it's like the stock market. It goes, you know, up, and then, you know, we go into a violent age, and then we go up a little bit, and then we dip a little bit, and we go up a little bit. And so it, it's, you know, it's not like, you know, the, the, the technology age where, where things are unfolding super fast, and you can see, like, the, you know, the iPhone started as an iPod, and now we have this amazing 
uh, tool that can take all kinds of, well, I can do Facebook Lives with it, and I can take amazing photos with it and so forth. So um, it's not like that. It's not like we're gonna see it in the course of five years or 10 years, this dramatic move towards world peace. I think it's more likely that we're going to see this kind of movement unfold in a very slow process. Unfortunately. I wish it wasn't. I wish it was going to be in five years. Maybe it will be. Or maybe I'm wrong. So I just want to give a little bit of background about my own personal experience here and in, in kind of it through the lens of how I'm experiencing uh, these shootings in Atlanta. First of all, I want to mention that I actually uh, spend a great portion of my formidable years in that area of Atlanta, North Atlanta. I went to high school in Woodstock, Georgia, where one of those spas are located. I have family in Ackworth, very close family in Ackworth, Georgia. Uh, so to, to see this pop up on the news, of course, is rather shocking. And then, as some of you already probably know, I spent a great deal of my adult life in Asia. Um, I, for the past 10 years, have been traveling uh, extensively, traveling and studying and teaching in Thailand, Japan, Korea, Vietnam, China, Singapore, Hong Kong, Taiwan, Nepal, Cambodia, India, Malaysia, Myanmar, and the Philippines. I've spent months and months in each of those places, except India. I spent two weeks in India. I think is the shortest that I've been in any of those places. Uh, and I never felt like I was in danger. I never felt threatened, ever. Felt like I was being discriminated against. And so I hope that the rest of the world can be so open-handed. I mean, particularly when, when I went to places like Hiroshima and Vietnam, you know, not that long ago, uh, people of my color, my race, the race that I identify as, Caucasian, I actually don't think, I mean, you know, we're going to get a little esoteric there, but I don't, don't really identify with any race. But I guess the race that people would see me as. You know, I went to Hiroshima and was welcomed there. I went to a, a monastery there where there were people buried from the bomb blast. And if you go to Hiroshima and you visit the site there, they've turned it into what they call the Peace Monument. It's a tribute to world peace. It's a three-story building illustrating the tragedy of war what can happen without compassion for others. And so 
that's my own personal stories of my travels in Asia. I mean, one of the reasons why I started teaching was from my experience of being in New York during September 11th. In the days and weeks and months following that event, the horrible suffering, myself and everybody in New York City. And so I turn to these teachings because they do emphasize so deeply compassion. Not just the Buddhist teachings, but all contemplative teachings. I also uh, went and studied uh, very deeply Vedanta Hinduism for a few years. But, you know, Christ talks about forgiveness and compassion. It's the medicine we need right now. If we can't step into another person's heart, regardless of their belief system, regardless of the color of their skin, if we can't sense that those people, that I bleed if you cut me, as William Shakespeare pointed out, if you tickle me, I'll laugh, that we're all wired to want a better life. We're all moving away from struggle. And so I'm planning on telling a story here, and so I think I'll move into that. This is a very famous story in the Buddhist canon, but it could really take place in any culture, in any spiritual tradition. And so I'll try to refer to that as I tell the story. This is a story of a woman named Kisa Gotami. And this takes place in the Buddha's time in northern India, outside of Savati, where the India's home monastery was located, or one of his home monasteries anyway. And so Kisa is a very young very beautiful Indian woman, probably around the age 23, 24. And uh, Kisa gives birth to her first baby boy. And she is just to the moon, happy, doting and dotting on her little newborn baby boy spending all of her waking moments sleeping in the same bed, giving to this baby everything her heart and soul can give. And she's overflowing with joy day in and day out. But about three weeks after the baby is born, the baby suddenly dies. And Kisa is devastated, feels as if her heart has been ripped from her chest. And she grabs the corpse of her baby in her arms. 
and she runs out into the street of the town, screaming at the top of her lungs, please, 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 somebody help me. I need medicine for my baby. My baby's very sick. And just, you know, screaming, blood-curdling screams. Please, please, somebody help me. I need medicine for my baby. And people in the village approach her. It's a rather bustling village. And they approach her, but they see that the baby's already dead. And so they think Kisa's a little bit crazy and they kind of shun her. They push her aside. And so she's zigzagging up the street, heading towards the village square yelling and screaming at the top of her lungs, please, please, won't somebody help me? And she finally reaches the square and she falls to her knees, clutching the corpse of her newborn baby. Again, screaming, blood-curdling screams at the top of her lungs, please, please, somebody help me. I need medicine for my baby. He's very sick. And again, people are approaching her and they see the baby's already passed. So they think he says crazy and they shun her aside. This goes on for some time. And finally, a wise elder approaches Kisa with a heart of compassion, puts his hand on her shoulder and says, Kisa, go to visit the Buddha. He will know how to help you. Kisa looks up at the man and wipes her tears. She says, all right, the Buddha, of course. Why didn't I think of that? And the man says, yes, the, the Buddha can help you. He's meditating over there just outside the village gate. If you go to visit him there now, he will speak with you. Kisa stands up, very excited, clutching the corpse of her baby. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you so much. And she goes off in that direction where he pointed her to. Now, I just want to add here the, the parentheses of the story. Uh, you can fill in the parentheses with anybody. It could be Kuan Yin will know how to help you, or Jesus will know how to help you, or God will know how to help you, or Allah will know how to help you, or Brahma will know how to help you. Insert your own deity there. If you have no deity, say the universe will know how to help you. That's all fine. Okay, parentheses over. Kisa runs and sees, insert your own deity, I'm going to use the Buddha, runs and sees the Buddha. She falls to her knees, clutching the corpse of her baby and says, Buddha, Buddha, please, please help me. My baby's very sick and we need medicine. Won't you please help us? And the Buddha looks at Kisa and surveys the scene and he can see that the baby's already passed. And he says to her, he says, with the grandmotherly-like compassion, he says, Kisa, I can help you, but I need you to go back to the village and collect a mustard seed from each household. When you have a handful of mustard seeds, return to me and bring the mustard seeds to me. He says, oh, mustard seeds, okay, I can do that. Yeah, fine, she's, 
standing up and wiping the tears away. And he says, the Buddha says, but he said the mustard seeds must be received from households that have never experienced any death. Oh, okay, I can do that, says Kisa, and she runs back to the village. So Kisa knocks on the first door. I'll try to do the sound effect. And she knocks on the first door and, and a middle-aged man answers. Kisa says, pardon me, sir, but I need to collect mustard seeds from each household in the village so that the Buddha can use them to help me with my baby. The man says, oh, mustard seed, okay. And he turns back to go to the kitchen. Kisa says, oh, but I need to know, have you experienced any death in this household? The man stops. Oh, yeah, of course. Uh, my brother recently died. Both my parents have passed away. Kisa says, oh, I'm terribly sorry for your losses. I can't accept any mustard seeds from this household because the mustard seeds that I collect must come from households that haven't experienced any death. And so she goes to the next door and she knocks on that door. And a young lady answers, probably maybe 10 years older than Kisa in her 30s, let's say. Kisa says, pardon me, ma'am, but I'm collecting mustard seeds from each household in the village so that the Buddha might be able to use them to help me with my baby. And the woman says, oh, okay. She runs, to, or turns rather, to go to the kitchen. And Kisa says, oh, I'm sorry, I need to know, have you experienced any death in this household? And Kisa says, well, sure, actually. My twin sister recently passed away and an uncle just died not that long ago. We actually lost our dog, too. Kisa says, ah, I'm terribly sorry for your losses, but I can't accept any mustard seeds from this household either because the mustard seeds that I collect must come from households that haven't experienced any death. And so she knocks on the next door. And an elderly man answers on a cane, leaning over. He says, oh, pardon me, sir, but I'm collecting mustard seeds from each household in the village so that the Buddha might be able to use them to help me with my baby. The old man says, oh, oh, mustard seed, okay. And he turns on his cane and he's moving slowly to his kitchen as fast as his frail body can take him. Kisa says, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, I need to know, have you experienced any death in this household? And the man kind of chuckles. He says, well, look at me. I'm, I'm old. Almost all of my friends have passed away, and I've, all of my family have already passed away. I'm the remaining one. And Kisa says, oh, I'm terribly sorry for your losses, but I can't accept any mustard seeds from this household because... The mustard seeds that I collect must come from households that haven't experienced any death. And Kisa goes to the next door. And the next door. 
and the next door, and the door after that, and the door after that, and the door after that. And finally, after so many doors, so many people she spoke to, she finally realized the message, the lesson that the Buddha gave her. Again, insert your own deity, that's fine. And she recognized that she's not alone in her suffering. And her broken heart begins to transform into the heart of compassion. And she, through her own struggle, through her own suffering, through her own desire for the present moment to be different than what it is, she recognized that all beings have that same desire at some time in their life. It might be present or past or future. But the human condition is such that we all experience this suffering. And so the story ends with Kisa again, collapsing, clutching the corpse of her baby, tears streaming down her face, but not the tears of a broken heart, but the tears of an open heart. And so, I'm going to close here by reading a poem by Rumi, and then I'll probably talk a bit about the poem as well. So I, I really just want to emphasize the story of Kisa here, this idea of common humanity. Now that story took place in a village in northern India. But what if we expand that village to be a global village? You knock on anyone's door, whether they be from your village or from somewhere far away, whether they are a different gender identification or sexual orientation or a belief system or ideology or political affiliation, that none of that matters. I mean, it matters on a certain level, but none of it matters on the level of humanity. If we're really going to come together, if we're really going to you know, stop hurting each other. That's the level we need to meet each other at. I'm not saying we need to ignore our differences, but rather I think the idea is to value and cherish our differences. Not to feel threatened by another person's walk of life, 
but to honor it. It takes a brave heart to carve your own way in this world. You know, when I was preparing for this morning's talk, I was going, you know, through my notes, and well, I really talk a lot about social justice and striving for change, and I was wanting to not make this talk about that because I've covered a lot of that ground already. Uh, so in that spirit, I am going to begin closing here. I do want to read this poem. So I think this, this poem has a lot of wisdom in it. This being, this human being, is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness, some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house, empty of its furniture. Still treat each guest honorably, for they may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Now, the reason why that's important is because we so often want to avoid those types of emotions. Hmm. Yeah, Rumi is quite something. And so the wisdom there is to open to experience as it arises. I talked about this in the previous episodes too, how so often when we feel heartache or pain, physical or emotional, we think we've done something wrong. Not recognizing that the human condition is designed for us to feel those feelings. In fact, if we couldn't feel those feelings, there would be no such thing as compassion. Uh, what kind of horrible world might we live in if that were the case? And so, turning and shifting now to our attention to the actual unfolding in Atlanta for a moment. When you read the news, You'll see numbers, numbers of victims. Each number is a human being, just like us. A human that desired a better life, that was consistently throughout their days 
moving towards laughter and love and moving away from discomfort and harm. A life cut short tragically, leaving siblings and children without a sister, a brother, a mother, a father. And in true Zen koan fashion, I'd like to offer the opportunity here to actually take in the whole perspective. In a Zen koan, when we practice with koans, which is really just a story like Kisa, the story of Kisa, the idea is to actually try to inhabit each angle, each viewpoint of each being in that story. And so here we can try to inhabit the what the, what the police might have seen, experienced, felt, saw when they answered that call. What their families might have felt when they answered that call. And the perpetrator, often overlooked, but what the mind of a 21-year-old wrought with deception and pain and anguish and blindness and self-righteousness, poisoned by whatever poisoned that person, what brought him to that behavior, what brought him to murder those people. And how might me in my life, how might I be reacting to my life through my own wounds? How might I be causing suffering to others through my own unconscious behavior? And allowing that to inspire my practice deeper, to inspire my dedication to alleviating that type of suffering. Hmm. It can be challenging work, but so necessary. And so as a way of closing here, I, I'd really like to remind you to bring in the good, the opening meditation. That it's not all bad, and that there is beauty in this world. There's laughter. There are beautiful sunsets. There is love and joy. And so I'm going to close there. So I really invite you to soak in the good again for a few moments. I'm going to, when I ring the bell here and press close, I, I'm going to take a few moments here to really um, remind myself of the goodness of my life, my experience, my world. And I hope you will too. And have a great weekend.
enjoy your weekend. Have have some rest. Have some, you know, good food if you can, if that's accessible. Have a laugh or two if it's available. When you do have that laugh, really feel into the body. What does this laughter feel like? What does this smile feel like? What does this sunset feel like? Take the good moments and really explore them. That really helps balance out that negativity bias. Thank you so much for being here. I'm going to return to the Facebook Lives in two months after the online meditation retreat that I'm offering. Those of you who signed up, thank you so much for, for doing that. I appreciate you. And thanks for being here, everyone who's been uh, enjoying these, whether it's on recording or live. I couldn't do this without you, of course. That's kind of obvious. Um, and in two months, I return at the end of May with a series on joy, altruistic joy, sympathetic joy, techniques of cultivating uh, an abundance of joy within our lives. And wow, it's such a really, uh, that's a beautiful exploration too. I'm looking forward to that as well. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Have a great afternoon. Have a great evening. I'll ring the bell and make it official. Thank you.